1861, Abraham Lincoln appointed John Dawson as governor of the Utah Territory. In our last two episodes, we've covered some of the bizarre, unintended consequences that came from that appointment. How within three weeks of taking office, Governor Dawson made an indecent advance on a respected widow in the city. How that, in turn, led to her nephew and a group of his friends chasing the governor down and beating him senseless. How Porter Rockwell then tracked the fugitives down and got into a high-stakes armed standoff with the sometime outlaw, Lot Huntington. How Porter ended up shooting Lot Huntington and taking the other two men, John P. Smith and Moroni Clausen, prisoner. Turning the two men over to the Salt Lake City Police and described how, under somewhat murky circumstances, the city police claimed the two men tried to escape and shot them dead. On today's episode, we will conclude with possibly the most bizarre, unexpected aspects of this story. The discovery of grave robbery in Salt Lake City and reports of a French ghost haunting the Great Salt Lake. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. After the Salt Lake police shot Moroni Clausen and John P. Smith, the two men were buried in Potter's Field at the city's expense. But as with many of the restless young men who came of age in this hard-scrabble territory and sometimes lived outside the law, Moroni Clausen came from a respected pioneer family. His parents, Moses and Cornelia Clausen, had led a wagon company of 300 pioneers in 1853. But Moroni had gotten in trouble several times, having been prosecuted the year before along with his friend Kenneth McRae for riot. Kenneth McRae, incidentally, was the son of Alexander McRae, who had been locked up in the Liberty Jail with Joseph and Hiram Smith. The somewhat surprising family dynamic was also true of Lot Huntington, whose father, Demrick Huntington, was a missionary to the Shoshone people and had created the first dictionary of the Shoshone language. His older brother, C. Allen, had also been prosecuted and sentenced to prison for cattle wrestling. But C. Allen had nevertheless distinguished himself for heroism in the rescue of the Martin Handcart Company when he carried the freezing, starving immigrants across the Sweetwater River. Now, the Clausen family sent the oldest brother, George, to reclaim the body of Moroni and move it to the family grave in Draper. The city gravedigger, a French immigrant named Jean-Baptiste, tried to discourage George from disturbing the body, arguing that it would be a sacrilege to move it now. But George was adamant that his sometimes wayward younger brother would lie in the family plot. George, along with everyone in Salt Lake City, was about to receive the shock of his life. As Baptiste removed the coffin lid, he saw the body of his brother lying face down and stripped bare. Assuming that the city had buried him in such a wretched condition, he marched to the city police where he confronted the Englishman and territorial lawman Henry Heath. Shaking with rage, George described what he had found and spat out, That is a terrible thing to do. Terrible to bury a man like that. But Heath denied it, shouting back, No such thing. No pauper ever had a better or cleaner burial clothes than Roan. I bought them myself. 
Both men fell silent as they realized that if the other were telling the truth, there was only one explanation for this. Grave robbery. Heath then started an investigation. He questioned the cemetery sexton, Jesse Little. Little told him that for the last three years, the city burials had been carried out by the Frenchman Jean-Baptiste. Heath learned his address and immediately went to the Baptiste house on 3rd Avenue in Salt Lake City. Baptiste was not at home, but his wife answered the door and let them into the sitting room. As Heath looked around the house, what he saw confirmed his worst suspicions. Quote, There were numerous boxes of clothing stacked around. Imagine our shock and surprise when we discovered they belonged to people buried in the city cemetery for several years past. Heath had pursued the investigation relentlessly, but there was more than professional commitment driving him. Shortly before, Heath had buried his nine-year-old daughter, Sarah Melissa. Heath idolized her, and her death had been devastating. He later wrote, quote, I feared her grave, too, had been desecrated, and that her funeral shroud was among the motley, sickening heap of fresh-soiled linen we found in the grave digger's hut. He then determined that if he should find the grave of his little girl disturbed, he would murder the Frenchman on the spot. He found him in the cemetery and confronted him. Baptiste began weeping, sinking to his knees and declaring his innocence. But Heath had murder in his heart and no pity for the wretched Baptiste. He grabbed him by the throat and began to throttle him. Liar, he shot back. We found the clothes. We found the clothes. Eventually, Heath recalled, I choked the wretch into a confession while he begged for his life. Heath then dragged him over to the section where his daughter's grave lie. Pointing to a nearby headstone, he demanded, Did you rob that grave? Yes, confessed Baptiste. Heath pointed to another headstone. Did you rob that grave? Yes, he sobbed. Heath then pointed to his daughter's headstone. And did you rob this grave? With bated breath and with the firm resolve to kill him should he answer in the affirmative, the Frenchman responded, No, no, not that one. Heath would later say that this denial had saved the Frenchman's life. Meanwhile, the police began removing boxes of clothes to the county courthouse, laying them out on display to help identify the victims. One of the officers, Albert Dewey, said that Baptiste rarely sold anything he had stolen from the graves. He hoarded the clothes about his house as a miser would his gold. While laying the clothes out on display was not especially difficult, getting Baptiste into jail was a challenge. One officer recalled, had the people got to him, he would have been lynched outright. Later, the police tried to walk him through the cemetery to identify what graves he had robbed, but so many spectators began to gather around that he refused, declaring that all the spectators would turn into a mob and kill him. He begged the officers to take him back to jail. The church leaders themselves were not exempt from the spirit of wrath that Baptiste's crimes had incited. Wilfred Woodruff recalled that the Frenchman could only estimate how many graves he had plundered. He wrote, 
He said his only motive was to sell the clothing. He said the devil was in him, which I think was true. Woodruff fumed as the parent of a recently lost child that Baptiste had committed, quote, one of the most damnable, diabolical, satanical, hellist sacrileges ever known or recorded in the history of man. Brigham Young, for his part, reassured the saints in the tabernacle that the plundering Frenchmen had done nothing that could harm any of their departed loved ones in the resurrection, and that sleeping in Christ they were safely beyond any power to hurt them or mar their joy. But how should the community deal with Baptiste? Brigham thought that hanging was too good for him. But the problem was, he hadn't actually committed a capital crime. So instead, they determined that such a unique crime called for a similarly unique sentence. The first part was to mark him for the offense. Now, there was a punishment in military courts martial at the time, and that was branding, either on the chest, the thigh, or worst of all, on the face, either the cheek or the forehead. C stood for cowardice, and the letter D stood for desertion. In a similar vein, Baptiste was sentenced to bear his crime for the world to see. Now, there aren't actually official court records of what took place, and the accounts differ in some points. The police officer Albert Dewey said that Baptiste was tattooed across the forehead with the words, branded for robbing the dead. Other accounts, though, say that the word grave robber were actually branded into his forehead. Next... Baptiste was banished from the territory of Utah on pain of death. The punishment took the form of rowing him out into the Great Salt Lake and marooning him on a small atoll near Antelope Island. The water was low at that time of year. As the police reached the island, they threw Baptiste out and rowed back to the shore. According to some accounts, Ethan Dewey emphatically, they did not leave him with a ball and chain attached to his foot. But other accounts were equally emphatic that they did. Now at this point, Jean-Baptiste disappears from the historical record. That is until about 30 years later, when a hunter, John Weingard, found a skeleton of an unfortunate man on the island. The skeleton had a ball and chain attached to its leg. The Salt Lake Herald declared this skeleton was undoubtedly the grave-robbing Frenchman and declared it was, quote, common knowledge that he had been marooned with a ball and chain. Newspapers of the time ran sensational accounts of the fate of the grave robber and the discovery of the skeleton. Some of these accounts prefigure the urban legends of our own day and spread reports the ghost of the Frenchman was a frequent sight along the Great Salt Lake. The Chicago Chronicle declared that, quote, Indians who visit the lake never remain after sundown near the island because of fear of evil spirits. The Mormons also look upon the island as a haunted spot and keep away from it as much as possible. Several supposed relics of the banished man have been discovered recently, and the old story of his ghoulish practices revived. Men who have recently explored the island report getting a glimpse of an aged form of a wild man as he disappears in an impenetrable cavern, and his wild shrieks and inhuman yells can be heard almost any night issuing from the lonely crags. And so concludes the bizarre affair of the governor, the gunfight, the grave robber, and the ghost of the Great Salt Lake. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. This ghoulish story concludes our second season. We want to thank everyone who has listened to these stories. The world is awash in podcasts, and it means so much to us that you have all tuned in to this one. And a special thank you to those of you who have left such kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. To our listeners across the United States, Germany, Brazil, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, Colombia, Guyana, Mexico, Bangladesh, Japan, Peru, Russia, Ecuador, Portugal, Ireland, New Zealand, and the Republic of Korea, thank you so much. Now this ends our season. If there's interest, we're happy to do more. If you'd like another season, and especially if you have ideas for stories to highlight, please leave us a podcast review and let us know. I'm your host, Nate Olson. 